Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. Joining me today is Tom Vincent, shareholder, cybersecurity and data privacy practice group lead, co-chaired diversity, equity, and inclusion committee at Gable Gottwalls in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tom's current practice involves information security, privacy, and regulatory compliance using his experience as a chief compliance officer. As a certified regulatory compliance manager and certified information privacy professional, Tom helps his clients with issues of data security and privacy, breach identification, and required reporting. Today, I've asked Tom to discuss all things related to data security, privacy, and breaches. Tom, thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Lee. I appreciate it. I've ever so briefly described your professional background you know, in my intro, but I'm curious, did you always want to become an attorney? And in doing so, what interested you about data security? Being an attorney became of interest to me when I realized I was not going to go any further with organic chemistry and the pre-med course of study that I planned on, I suppose there was a point at which I decided that I wanted to be an attorney. As far as data security goes, really where that became something of, of interest to me was not once I started in private practice, but in my background in compliance. And also as part of that, I was a, a hiring manager for a number of years. And you know, a lot of my interest in it came down candidly to all of the times that I had to either hire someone or, you know, rarely fire someone and what I did to make sure that they didn't take my stuff. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I have definitely had the same concerns in my practice. So that's interesting. So what do you think has historically caused just a lack of security around data? Like, I, I kind of feel like this topic came more to the public attention over the last few years and almost like it snuck up on us. And so do you have any thoughts on maybe why that is or why that happened? I'll caveat this with is with everything else I'll talk to you about today, that a lot of this comes from my personal experience. So there are others that may have different feelings on it. Sure. Uh, for me, I think one of the reasons is that for a long time, I think we as a certainly as a corporate culture, have not really thought about data ownership the right way. You know, we fit many companies and, and even individuals think about data as something that we can really own, that we have in our possession and that, that either nobody else can have or that it's ours to do with as we will. And if we think about it, in your, when you go to work or when I go to work, you know, there's a chair in my office. I can't, I can't just take that home. I can't just say, hey, Gable Gottwalls, I'm taking my chair home. But we do that with information every day. So we have this notion that data is ours to do with as we want. And, and what we're seeing now, I think, is people realizing, especially those whose information it is, it was before we got it, let's say, that's not the case, that there is, a, there is still a right to what, is, what happens with that information. You know, mm -hmm. let's compare with the office chair where I bought the chair doesn't care what I do with it afterwards. If it gets lost, I don't have to tell them that I lost their chair. But if we have someone's information and we lose it, we have to tell them that we lost it. There's a, there's a right that's preserved in that. And I think, if, you know, the more we can think about information, not as something that is given or purchased, but something that is entrusted to us, and there's still a, there's a reserved right to it, then we can think more about 
how to handle it and how to handle when it gets out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like kind of the difference between ownership and management. Your chair example, I, as the owner of Workman Forensics, can take that chair home if I want, but my managers can't. And so then that, I'm thinking of the, it's kind of an older word, I guess, but like steward, like just being responsible for something, but not owning that. And, and I like the word entrusted. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So securing data, and especially from the context we were just talking about, can feel overwhelming because it, well, and I would say responsibly securing the data can feel kind of overwhelming because one, there's a lot of data. Two, how I might care about my data being handled might not be the same as how much you would want your data to be handled. There's just like several standards, I guess, there. Where do you recommend that your clients begin? What I generally tell clients is the first thing you need to do is you need to know what you have. You need to know what it is that you're getting because that's going to dictate in many instances how you have to protect it, how you have to handle it. Because there are a number of, and I'm, I'm going to use the term requirement generally, but that includes statutes, regulations, in some cases, contractual obligations, because there are no, any number of reasons why I as a lawyer may be subject to those requirements. But once you know what that information is that you have, then you can better know what those requirements are mm -hmm. to to put those in place because some of those requirements kick in just because you have the information, not because you've lost it. But right. it's also important to understand getting back to that, that entrust, that entrustment analogy. We understand why someone gave us that information and not just here's what I want you to do with it, but here's what I want you to not do with it. Hmm. And it's important to, to make sure those expectations are communicated and understood that's why, for example, it's, it's important to have a privacy policy on your website. I mean, even something like this that says, here's the information we may collect from you from our website, and here's what we're going to do with it. Here's why we're going to do that with it. Sure. Because, you know, more often than not, people are less likely to consider where their information will end up than they are to consider why it is they're giving it up. We don't necessarily think about what could happen to our information when we make an online purchase, we're much more interested in what it is that we're buying and where that goes rather than where the information that we provide ends up. But to get back to your question, I think those are, those are really two important threshold questions for, for any, anyone that's taking in information is know what you have and know why you have it. And then everything really can, most everything I should say, can flow from that determination. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's kind of just even for our forensic accountants and investigators who listen to the podcast, one of our things that we start out with in planning is just making a list of a client's concerns and then identifying what do they have so that we know how to answer those questions. So essentially, we're making a list in, in this, what we're talking about with you, make a list of what we have and then why we have it. Then you can take the steps from there. I like that. How does somebody keep, somebody like me, or maybe our listeners, keep up with the seemingly ever-changing, evolving regulations surrounding data security and maybe even well, data, data privacy. Well, and, and I know we're, we're going to get into the, the difference of, between those, but I think really a good way to start or a good, a good primer is just to watch for the next breach because more often than not, particularly when you're dealing with some of the 
I shouldn't say more technical sources, but, but sources that are more geared towards the specifics of a breach, that's where you're going to see it's the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, so to speak, of, well, here's everything they should have done. And especially when you get into the complaints of different agencies, some of the lawsuits that spring up, I think the, you'll be able to see why is it that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in my experience, that's one of the best things, the best learning tools is, well, what did they do wrong? Because that's where often you can see those pivot points of, well, we could have done this, but we did this instead. Or we treated this information like this and really we should have treated it like this over here. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and that's, that's a little, you know, ghoulish, I suppose, to, to look at what another party did wrong to learn what to do right. But I think just from a beginner standpoint, I think it's a good place to start because you are going to see a lot of requirements and a lot of highlighted that you may not see in a more scholarly before the fact approach of, well, these are some things to watch out for. Mm-hmm. So to speak. Yeah. Some like actionable items. I could, I could see that. Is there anybody that you follow, you know, maybe send you those emails or do you have Google alerts or something set up that kind of triggers when you know that there's been a data breach that you could, that we could research whenever that happens? Krebs obviously is a good source. Mm-hmm. I also, I do use Google alerts some, and I certainly recommend them to clients, but not necessarily for that reason. One of the things that will, that we're, I don't know that we're going to get into it a lot here, but I, since you mentioned Google alerts, I want to make sure and give your listeners this recommendation. If you have third parties that you're dealing with that are important to your business that, in, that involve your data or really do anything, and this is really in the context of, of information security, what I recommend to clients is set up Google alerts on that way. If they have, if they have a problem that's going to directly impact you, you'll get a real time email about it rather than having to go dig it up yourself and find out about it later. That's a great idea. I could see that applying in my business for the different cloud-based providers that we have. We love how easy they are to use and they're usually the brands that are the most followed and, you know, so you think that they're being most secure, but it could happen to anybody. So that that's a really great idea. I'm going to do that after we finish recording this. Yeah. And then you mentioned Krebs and I just will put the link to that in the show notes, but you're talking about Krebs on security. Yes. Yes. And there are some other specific sources, depending on whatever industry you're in. Health IT security is one that's good. There are some other industry specific sources like that, that will give that information. The International Association of Privacy Professionals is another good one. Another good source generally for privacy issues, but because those are often implicated by security breaches, uh, you can find information out there as well. Okay, great. So what type of data has to be obtained in an intrusion to be considered a reportable data breach? Is that a loaded question? (laughs) I don't know if it's a loaded question. It's certainly a very broad question. And I'll give the, the typical attorney response of it depends. Because, you know, generally, the reporting requirements are based on the notion that because that happened, it's important to someone else. When you look at the different reporting requirements, it's important to understand what the information was. And, and this, this may seem sort of like a chicken and the egg equation, but it's important to understand what the, what the harm is when it gets out or what the perceived harm is. Because when you go through the different requirements for reporting, and I'm just going to go through a few of them here to talk about what it is that, that triggers them, you'll see there's not any, that the only real common element is that it could be 
damaging or could be damaging to someone or put someone at risk. Typically what we see are in, when it's personal information and that can vary according to your state of residence. We'll start, we'll start at the state level. Some states, for example, require, for example, Oklahoma, first, in, first initial or first name plus social security number, driver's license number, or financial or credit card account number with some sort of PIN. Mm -hmm. And it has to be electronic. In other words, it has the electronic information has, has to have gotten out. Paper doesn't count. There has to be some risk of harm or actual harm to the individual whose information got out. That's a pretty self-contained piece right there. But then you have other states where it's a broader definition of information that can trigger a breach. There's at least one state that includes mother's maiden name, for example. Other states may have a different definition of breach. Some states include paper. Some states, it doesn't have to be a PIN or a code with a financial account number. It can just be the account number. Some states don't require a risk of harm. It's just the fact that the security, confidentiality, or integrity of the information has been compromised. Beyond that, if it's personal information that is health information, then you may have a reporting requirement under HIPAA. Mm -hmm. And that gets to reporting to not just the individuals, but also to Department of Health and Human Services. But then beyond that, you could also have some instances, you may also have some instances where reporting of commercial information is required if that if it gets out. For example, if it is significant enough that investors would want to know about it, then you might need to report it to the Securities and Exchange Commission through a corporate filing for your company if you're publicly traded, let's say. And then beyond that, you also have the issues of client representation. And for example, people in my profession, there are various state conduct rules that require us to keep information confidential. And the American Bar Association just came out with guidelines. Again, these are model rules. They're not explicit requirements, but they are out there and clients are aware of them that if there is a breach such that it compromises your representation of the client, that you need to notify the client. When we talk about what triggers reporting, we've got to go back to those initial questions. You know, what, it is that, what is it that you have and why is it that you have it? And then look at what happens once it gets out. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, everything you've listed, all of those seem very reasonable for just a responsible party. So none of them seem like crazy, like, oh my goodness, I have to remember this. It's, it seems very logical and reasonable. Like that's how I would want it to be handled if it was my data or my confidentiality. We'll be right back to this interview. If you're a small business owner or you serve small businesses, then you're probably familiar with the Paychecks Protection Program by this point. Whether you've received funds yet or not, in a few short weeks, you will need to provide your bank with documentation to request loan forgiveness. As a way for Workman Forensics to serve small businesses during this time, the Data Sleuth team has created a free Excel worksheet. This worksheet helps you track the uses of your Triple P loan funds, the required minimum payroll cost percentage, and the recommended supporting documentation. To access this free worksheet, visit www.workmanforensics.com forward slash WF dash products forward slash PPP dash funds dash worksheet to download a copy. The link will also be provided in the show notes. Welcome back to the podcast. In preparing for this interview today and reading some different information, I don't think I'd ever stop to think about that there might be a difference between data security and data privacy. Will you talk a little bit about that difference? The easiest way that I think about the difference is that security is really 
making sure that you're keeping the protection of that information appropriate. I mean, you're securing it, you're keep keeping it from getting out. Privacy really gets to the, the other side of it, which is how do you share it appropriately? Because while in many instances we think, well, I want my information kept completely private. If I don't want to, if I give it to you, I don't want you to share it with anybody else. In principle, that sounds like a great idea, but so many of the parties that we deal with use other companies or individuals to provide services that if we said don't share it with anybody, then we wouldn't go near it. We wouldn't be able to do many things that we take for granted. You know, just as an example from a prior life, many banks outsource their ATM machines. And so if they couldn't share your account information with those ATM companies, you wouldn't be able to use an ATM card. When we talk about the two, there are at times tension between them but it's important to realize that really they're, they're working for essentially the same goal. They're just approaching it in different ways. And more and more companies are combining or unifying those areas because they really depend upon each other. I mean, you, you, look, you know, HIPAA is a good example of the security rule in HIPAA gets to how is the information secured, both from an administrative standpoint, you have policies and procedures in place, from a physical standpoint, are your servers locked in a room somewhere where people can't get to them? And from a technical standpoint, are there firewalls to use encryption? And privacy is really the, the manifestation of that expectation of security. We expect our information will be kept private in part by preventing the wrong people from getting it by using things like firewalls, policies and procedures, and locked doors. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So when someone, let's say a company has a breach and damages are assessed, what is the basis for those damages? Like, how are they actually quantified? It depends. Huh. <laughs> awesome. Uh, no. Getting back to the, getting back to my example before about when do you have to report it? A lot of it depends on both the, the type of information you have, the statute under which you reported it, and at times damages. And I'll give you just a few examples you'll see different requirements that have attached and, and different things that have come out of it, different penalties that have come out of it, I should say. For example, the Yahoo breached some years ago. Getting back to the, the SEC requirements that I talked about, there were other damages resulting from the breach itself in terms of their settlements, uh, looking at you know, compensating for damages. But one of the things that I highlight with the Yahoo breach when I when I do seminars is that there was a $35 million fine to be paid to the Securities and Exchange Commission because the breach was not disclosed when it was supposed to be. And again, there the damage was not to the individuals who, if you want to think about it differently, the damage was not to the individuals whose information was compromised. The damage was the, to the investors who may have bought shares of Yahoo without realizing that breach had occurred. Mm -hmm. One of the difficulties with respect to damages in breaches is it's very hard to determine in many instances what damage actually occurred. Right. If your information is out there, what sort of damage does that result in if nothing ever happens to it or if it's, if it's already been out there? More and more, you're seeing judgments or fines that are not tied to the actual damage or you're seeing those damages being levied in state courts using some of these federal guidelines. 
I talked about the SEC just there, but there's a couple of others. One, there was a HIPAA breach that was reported. This was a couple of years ago. It was the first enforcement penalty against a business associate. And, and for those that aren't familiar with it, if you are a healthcare provider, a health plan, someone that actually provides healthcare to individuals, you're typically referred to as a covered entity. And that is the entity that generates what's called protected health information, which is subject to HIPAA. If you have another party that you work with, say a law firm, an accounting firm, an IT firm that uses that protected health information you generate to provide services to you, then that entity is referred to as a business associate. They are subject to the same security requirements of a covered entity. In this particular instance, we had a business associate that had an unencrypted smartphone stolen. Now, I talked before about administrative protections as one of the safeguard, one of the categories of safeguards for entities subject to HIPAA, whether it really whether it's a covered entity or a business associate. In this instance, some of those administrative safeguards were not present. This entity did not have policies around the theft of an encrypted smartphone. They hadn't included it, I believe, in their risk assessment. The penalty was $650,000, but the number of records involved was just over four hundred. Uh-huh. You know, and if you think about it, when we see these large breaches, these, we call them plate tectonic breaches, where it's this, you know, these massive amounts of, of information, equally massive fines that are attached to them. More often than not, when you get down to the price per record, it's not a whole lot. It's just because there's so many records out there. But here, if you do the math, you've got, you know, 650000 for 400 records, right. which is that makes that price per record much higher. And a lot of that was due to the fact that this entity didn't have those HIPAA protections in place, notwithstanding whatever damage may have actually occurred. I see. And you're also seeing, just to touch on the other piece I mentioned about state courts, there have been some state courts, there's one, one decision in Connecticut, I believe, where they looked to federal law, in this case HIPAA, which does not have a private right of action. In other words, Someone who suffers a HIPAA breach doesn't get to sue the hospital under HIPAA. Hmm. Department of Health and Human Services brings action. That's where that that's where those fines come from. Okay. In this case, it was a Connecticut state court that used HIPAA to define what the standard of care was with respect to an individual's information that was breached, resulting in their lawsuit. So putting it another way, they couldn't sue under HIPAA. They sued under state court, but this and the state looked to HIPAA for those requirements when it based its to use as the basis for its judgment. Mm-hmm. So then, does HIPAA, as the example, does it lay out some sort of damage or fine structure for these to be based on? Or I guess what is that? You know, I'm thinking about quantifying these things as an accountant. So where are those numbers coming from? There is some quantified information with the Department of Health and Human Services. One of the problems from an outsider when you're dealing with these sorts of calculations is in some respects, they're, they're black boxed. You know, some of the specifics of the situation we don't see to understand what may have resulted in a higher penalty in a particular situation. And that's why more often than not, I think, or certainly nowadays, you're seeing more focus on the preventive side because that cost-benefit analysis is harder to make when you don't really know 
what the cost is going to be. Right. Absolutely. And also why the answer is it depends, right? <laughs> That's right. Because I've gone through this with, with a number of clients. And in some cases, you can put some quantifiable number around them. But then you have things like HIPAA that can skew it because of the difficulty of discerning their basis for calculations. Hmm. If HIPAA is not involved, often what we have to go by, getting back to what I was saying before, is we have to go by well, what's been done before. What have been those penalties that have been assessed looking at per record calculation? And you can come up with some idea, but I'm reluctant to put a whole lot of stock in that just because of all the variables that can come into play. For sure. So what do you think the largest risk to most organization is for data breaches? In my experience, and this gets to where I've uh, helped companies with risk assessments and also had to investigate and resolve data breaches, it really comes down to a lack of understanding on the part of employees. And this goes all the way up to, I include management, you know, any representative of the company, basically, what they have access to and 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 by extension, how they can compromise it, but also how they are targets. Yep. When I have done in-person seminars, that is something that, that when I watch people's faces, no one likes to think of themselves as a target. And typically, when I say that, it's often followed by, well, but I only handle X. Well, you might only handle X, but you are an in into the company. And using you, they may be able to get access to Y and Z, which are much more valuable, especially now with everyone working at home, understanding that our normal behind the scenes security efforts that, that our company IT does may be in place if your remote work setup is, is appropriate. But many people are working from, maybe working from their own computers that they share with other people in the household. They may not have appropriate virus protections there to make sure that that information is protected. And also, and this was something that my son raised yesterday when I was telling him about this podcast, is you have other people in the home that can be targeted as well who may have access to that system. Yeah. Um, teens that are targeted through chat rooms in different games for personal information that are provided links or attachments that may contain or connect them to malware. If you think about it, one of the common social media requests that's going around now, you've probably seen this is, hey, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna pass it along. So I'm gonna fill this out and then you fill it out after me. Yep. Who's your favorite teacher? What's your first car? Yep. And other answers to what are typically security questions for remote access. Yep. Things like that where people tend to separate themselves and their personal lives or their personal actions from things like information security. When that is something that because you have access to information, you are a target. You can't disregard that. Yeah, for sure. What do you think the most effective training is in preventing data breaches? I, I wish I had a, a perfect answer for that because I'd make a lot more money. But <laughs> I, I think what I have seen is effective is walking someone through how they can, how they can be a problem. For example, and this, this is something that actually happened. And fortunately, 
just to to be a little immodest here, I'd done training with this this client, and someone else was able to stop it in about ten minutes, and we were able to control it. But uh, I have a client that's a, a healthcare provider. One of their receptionists got flowers at her desk from her husband, and she took a picture of it, posted it on Facebook. Well, fortunately, the person next to her realized pretty quickly that when she took the picture of the flowers, they were sitting on a patient list, which also found its way onto Facebook. And we were able to, through uh, looking at the circumstances, looking at what actually got there, importantly, because the person next to her very quickly said, what did you just do? You need to take that down now. Uh, We were able to control that without that turning into an actual reportable breach. Mm-hmm. But it's not just that, it's, it's understanding how, you know, providing real world examples for people so that they can see them and recognize them, if, or not, if not recognize them, at least question them when they come in. One of the things that we see as an example of this sort of thing, where it's part of someone's day-to-day job, but they may not realize what they're doing that could cause a problem, Sure, is the misdirection of the vendor payments. Um, You've got somebody, let's say big company, you've got somebody in accounts payable. Their job is whenever they get information about a vendor in, they set it up. They point that company revenue flow to that vendor. They get a request in from a vendor saying, Hey, you know, just, just so you know, next time you pay us, we've changed our bank account to this one over here. So you don't have to do it right now, but just whenever you pay us, send the money here. Right. Yep. And I can't, I can't tell you, not only how many clients and other parties I've talked to where that's happened to them, I can't tell you how many it's been a recurring issue. Either it's happened more than once or it's when it happens, it happens for months at a time. Oh gosh, it's yeah. because, and again, you're dealing with someone who is just trying to do their job. They don't understand that. Yeah. What you're doing is you're telling money where to go. And so, you may think of yourself as just being an accounts payable, but you're one of the points where money leaves that company. And more importantly, the company should understand you're one of the key people when it comes to sending money out of the company. So you need to know these things. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as you've been talking about the different ways to prevent these and and to train employees, it's not just another thing for a business to do, but really, because we talk about on this podcast and a lot of the people I follow on LinkedIn talk about the different email scams and phishing and conditioning people like, like the, uh, the security questions that you mentioned on Facebook, all of these things. And then mixing that with data security, data, data privacy. It's not like what you're talking about today is another set of training. It really all fits in together to protect those outside intrusions from stealing money, fraud schemes, email schemes. But then also, you know, a lot of times as a forensic accountant, I'm thinking about the money leaving the door, you know, leaving the organization. But if we can just also include in those trainings that the data is just as important as the dollars leaving, then that doesn't necessarily give us another thing to do, but just can combine that same idea to help employees understand their importance in this process. I think that's exactly right. And, and I, I wish more companies would do that because you're so on point. It is not another thing to do. It is part of your day-to-day process. It's just when I have done these presentations before, I'll often talk about information as an asset of the company because it has value. Not only do you see this with respect to leading to the money going out the door, 
but um, if you don't mind, I'll give you a couple of other examples. Yeah, perfect. One is when you're dealing with vendors and looking at how information is transferred over. Going back to the very first question you asked, why do people treat data differently? Well, I think because in many instances it was used as, as a giveaway. You know, you're going to charge me X thousands of dollars to use your software, but then you'll charge me less if I allow you to keep some of the information that goes through your software. Great. Mm -hmm. But that in and of itself tells us there's value to that data and what is the risk we are exposing the subjects of that data too by allowing that third party to have it. Yeah. And similarly, when we're talking about ways that this information can get out and training people to use it properly, one of the common sorts of breaches I see is not just client information or customer information, but it's employee information. So it's important for people in a company to understand that you know, it's not just that your actions could impact customers, but they could impact the person that's sitting next to you. And ultimately, you may not be the one that causes a breach, but if you are, or if you know that it's occurred and you don't report it, then the impact to you could be, well, you don't get a bonus this year because all that money is going to pay out customers from a class action. Or if it's a bad enough fine, you know what, we've had to cut staff and you have to go. All of this is sort of in the, gl the gloom and doom category of this is why it's important and, and all of that. But, but I'll tell you, especially when, when I've done employee training and because what I find very beneficial both for, for me and also the client is to have interactive training with employees where they can volunteer instances that they have seen that are a problem or even better, ways that they have been able to avoid sharing information inappropriately. One, it gives management that sense that this is important to employees, but also, hey, here's some things going on we weren't aware of, but for the employees, and I'm thinking of this healthcare client again, where you know, I've talked to orderlies and some of their technicians who have given me some different ways to communicate without you know, sharing patient information inappropriately, it's very empowering for them and it gives them a sense of ownership in that process because they've been able to have an impact. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. We do something at Workman Forensics where we have a workshop format where we solve problems. That's how we do our case planning. It's how we improve our processes. And I would just think that that type of training would be, I hadn't thought about applying it here, but by following this kind of format where everybody has a voice and you talk about the different, those types of examples, you're right, it would be extremely empowering. And, you know, it would stick in my mind better going forward than just seeing a bunch of rules and regulations and becomes a very productive, almost creative conversation about how can we improve our organization and mitigate our risks in this area. That's right. That's what I've seen. And, and it's really, I mean, for me, it's really exciting. I mean, one, because you know, let's face it, not everyone thinks this is a very exciting area. And for me, when someone else gets, you know, visibly involved during one of these training sessions, it's, it's sort of like growing interest in the area and, and, you know, finding another nerd that's interested in this, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, it sort of feeds on itself. So because these are quarterly training sessions that I do for this particular client. So when I come back, I can, you know, lean on that, on that person and they have increased their value to the company because now they're paying attention to that sort of thing. 
Yeah. And they're really thinking about how can I, how can I make this part of my job? And so it's, it's almost like networking the importance of that issue and seeing how they then can, can make it part of someone else's job. They can, they can reinforce what somebody else is doing where it doesn't become this hypothetical. It's, it's a, again, a real time issue for them and it ultimately can become a real time issue for others. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge in this area to give us some real world examples and just some practical, tangible steps that we can take as business owners or even as trusted advisors to our clients to add this to our like world of fraud prevention and even detection. And so I just really appreciate your time. Thanks for thanks for sharing all of this with us today. Before I let you go, though, would you let our listeners know the best way or ways to connect with you? Sure. Um, our firm website is, is gablelaw.com, G-A-B-L-E-L-A-W.com. And you can see my contact information there. Also in our cybersecurity and data privacy practice page, there are a number of articles that can give you some additional information on this topic. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to connect or discuss this topic. And if anyone has any additional questions on what we've talked about, certainly feel free to reach out to me, email, LinkedIn messaging, or my work phone. And uh, I'm happy to talk to you. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. Really enjoyed our conversation and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Leah. You too. I appreciate the time. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.